I mean, we've got such an exciting passage this morning. We're in Acts chapter 16. It's a, uh, an account filled with drama and just the utterly life-transforming power of the gospel. So I'm really excited for us this morning. I want to start by um, sharing a testimony with you all. Um, it's from the book Thief, Prisoner, Soldier, Priest, written by Paul Cowley. And in this book, he describes his remarkable journey to faith in Christ. He, he grew up in Manchester with alcoholic parents. And so from a very young age, he was exposed to heavy drinking, aggressive arguments. As a result of this, he was eventually led into homelessness and crime. And by the age of 17, he was behind bars. He eventually left prison, went on to join the army, but the army couldn't give him what he was after. It couldn't give him meaning and purpose, and it certainly couldn't fix the guilt from his past and restore all those broken relationships he's left on the way. But one day, an encounter with a Christian changed his life forever. After hearing the gospel, he became a follower of Jesus, and he devoted the rest of his life to sharing the gospel, particularly in prisons. This is an amazing testimony, and if you haven't read the book, I'd recommend it. But after hearing it, we can be tempted to feel that some conversion stories are more convincing than others. Maybe for some of us here, not being able to pinpoint a dramatic U-turn in our lives can actually give us doubt if we've been genuinely saved. But what we're going to read today are three wonderfully diverse and different testimonies from the book of Acts. We're going to see three people that have come to saving faith despite having completely different experiences. We'll see that in all kinds of ways, to all kinds of people, God opens the door to salvation. No one is beyond the reach of the gospel. No circumstance can overcome the power of the gospel. And we can have confidence that God is at work opening hearts for his gospel. Let's get into the text and set the scene for the three characters we're about to meet. And kids, I know you're in with us, so if you are listening along, see if you can spot three similar things about the experiences of these three people and three different things about their experiences. Right, so Acts 16, verse 6. And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come up to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So, passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on to Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. From our perspective, the beginning of this journey must have been an incredibly frustrating time for Paul, Silas, and Timothy. I think I've got a map, if that can go up on the screen. Oh yeah, brilliant. So they started uh, in Antioch, uh, the second one up there, and they would have tried to go west towards the coast of Turkey, but they're blocked. So instead they go north, and that region at the top, Bithynia, is where they would have been trying to go next, but once again, blocked. So what was God doing? 
Amazingly, as we read on in the passage, we'll see that God was closing doors here in order to prepare the missionaries for open hearts elsewhere. After changing their direction twice, God opens a door for the missionaries by sending Paul a vision of a man calling them over to Macedonia. This is where they then get on a boat from Troas across the sea to Philippi. Discussing the vision together, this vision of the man from Macedonia, the team conclude that God had called them over to preach the gospel. And the significance of this journey should not be lost on us. At this point, the gospel had only been spread in Asia. This is the first time that the gospel would set foot on European soil. Of course, it wasn't Europe at the time, but it was from Europe that the gospel would soon fan out to North America, South America, Africa, Oceania, and thereby reach the ends of the earth. But this amazing spread of the gospel, first to Europe and then to the ends of the earth, had very humble beginnings. And we'll see that in our first point this morning. And our first point is this, an ordinary conversation. Let's read from verse 11. So, setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside, where we supposed there was a place of prayer, and we sat down and spoke to the women that had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia, from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshipper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized, and her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. It was tradition for Paul and his colleagues when they entered a new city to go to the local synagogue. But when they arrive at Philippi, they find that there isn't one. So instead, they move their way outside of the city to look for some fellow Jews. They discovered a small group of women who had come together in a place of prayer. Sitting down with the women, Paul begins to speak with the group. We're not told exactly what he said. The words aren't recorded for us in Acts, but we can piece together what it might have been from his other interactions with Jews. He might have explained how Jesus was the long-awaited king from the line of David. He might have shown them how Jesus not only fulfills the role of Messiah, but was the very son of God. He surely would have told them that through Jesus' death and resurrection, salvation and the promise of God is made available to all. Perhaps he would have said something similar to what we read in Acts 13, 38 to 39. It says this, Let it be known to you, therefore, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. So as he's sitting there with this woman saying these things, one of the women listening, a seller of purple cloths named Lydia, pays attention to what Paul has to say. We can only imagine her joy and relief as she hears the gospel and it becomes clear to her that in Christ is true forgiveness of sins. In Christ is freedom from the law, and in Christ is the fulfillment of the promise of God. And we see that the effect of the gospel on her life is immediate. Without delay, she's baptized, and the gospel is shared with her household. 
We also see instant fruit of the gospel as she joyfully extends hospitality to the missionaries by opening up her home to them. Now, to passers-by, this scene by the river may have looked ordinary, irrelevant even, but the Lord was at work in a big way, transforming an individual into a follower of Jesus. And we can see how it was the Lord that was at work in this by what we read in verse 14. It says that the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. Was it Paul's wisdom or intellectual speaking that brought around the first European convert? No, it was the Lord that opened her heart. The Lord who predestined Lydia and chose her from the beginning of time had been at work. He'd been at work closing doors to the ministries, the missionaries, sending them a vision and bringing them here to speak with her so that he could open her heart. And when I read this, I'm just left in awe at how little we do to win souls. And yet, God still involves us anyway. We're reminded that our evangelism is not effective in itself, but the Lord works through it. And he works through it to open hearts. And when we see how Lydia comes to faith, we can see that for some people, their own conversion experience isn't so outwardly dramatic, but it takes place through careful thought and conversation. Take a moment to look back on your own coming to faith if you're a Christian this morning. I know for me, my salvation could look relatively unimpressive. A young boy in a Christian home, praying with his parents and accepting the Lord Jesus. But just think of all of the work that God has done to orchestrate that moment. You could almost say it begins here. Every story of a salvation, no matter how small, is a story of God establishing his kingdom in powerful ways, no matter how small it may look from an earthly perspective. One Christian author writes this, and it will be on the screen. Christians worship a big God with a big mission that will one day reach this whole big world. Yet for all of his bigness, our God has a remarkable love for the small. He sets his eye upon small people in small places during small moments. Brothers and sisters, to truly embrace God's great big mission, we must embrace his love for the small. So that means we should be encouraged to enter conversations expectantly. And that means in those conversations, we need to be faithful to bring Jesus into everyday life. It might seem pointless, but here we see how God moves powerfully, even in the midst of a calm and quiet moment. So that's Lydia. Let's get back into the passage and meet the next person to encounter the transforming power of the gospel. And we'll see that it happens this way in point two, a dramatic confrontation. I'm going to read from verse 16. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus to come out of her. And it came out of her that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, 
they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. So at the start there, we meet our second character, this slave girl. And the contrast between Lydia and the possessed girl could not be greater. Lydia was said to be a worshiper of God. This poor girl is in the clutches of a demonic spirit. And whilst Lydia's conversion was unlikely to draw any attention, the slave girl is saved in a much more dramatic manner. We're told that the girl had fortune-telling abilities because of the spirit within her. And tragically, her owners were exploiting this condition to make themselves rich. And it's almost surprising at the accuracy with how she describes the missionaries, isn't it? She calls them servants of the Most High God that are here to show the way of salvation. We know that's true. So what reason could a demon have for proclaiming the truth? It's likely that Satan's tactic here was to stop the gospel by infiltrating the gospel. And by associating the gospel with the occult, the missionary's message wouldn't stand out in a culture that worshipped spiritual forces. We see this as well when Jesus was walking the earth, that wherever he went, spirits would cry out, revealing him to be the son of God. But Jesus never encouraged this as if it was some sort of free publicity. Every time it happens, he rebukes the spirit and commands them to come out of the person they possessed. And so does Paul here, both for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of the girl. In an instant, her life is changed. And in the name of Jesus, the spirit is cast out. She is saved both from the oppression of the spirit and her wicked owners. And even though it's not explicitly stated here in the passage, we do actually have good reason to believe that she is saved into the kingdom of God. By placing the story between two other conversions, Luke, who wrote Acts, is likely drawing a comparison between these three people. And in the gospel, we see this pattern of whenever someone is delivered from a spirit, they're also delivered from sin and made a follower of Christ. It's no different here. It is by the name of Jesus that the girl is made free. And it is that same name that she could be saved by. Now, it's quite hard to see similarities between this girl and the people we know in our lives, in our modern Western society. But without Christ, we are all enslaved to sin. Sometimes that enslavement shows itself in visible and dramatic ways. Other times it can be more hidden. Maybe there are people we know in our lives that live with an obvious disregard for others and the law. Maybe there are others who are silently struggling with an overwhelming addiction. That might be your story of faith in Jesus this morning. Maybe like the girl, you were trapped in the clutches of sin, but Jesus rescued you. And if that's not your story, and you feel hopelessly trapped by what you're going through, know this, the name of Jesus 
can break the power of sin and set you free. Paul believed this to be true, and he exercised this faith at great personal risk. Not only did he cross cultural borders to reach someone far from Christ, but he did so even when it upset the status quo. By casting out the spirit, Paul made enemies of the girl's owners. Distraught at their loss, they rile up the people into this mob and seize the missionaries. And it's, it's interesting, isn't it, that despite being there for many days preaching the gospel, it's not until someone loses their financial prospects that people begin to take offense. The same can be true for us today, can't it? People may be willing to hear the good bits of the gospel, but they lose interest when they discover the radical lifestyle that Jesus calls you to. Just like Paul, we need to be willing to speak for Jesus, even when facing opposition, even when facing persecution. And we see here that because Paul valued the salvation of someone he didn't even know over his own comfort, he and Silas are beaten badly, thrown into jail, and put in stocks. I mean, can you imagine it? They're beaten with rods, and they would have had bleeding, untreated wounds, and then rusty metal is clamped over them. But for Paul and Silas, the privilege of taking the gospel to those who didn't know it blotted out any discomfort from the beating. Let's read on in verse 25 to discover their reaction and meet the third convert in today's story. Our third point this morning is a life-threatening situation. I'll read in verse 25. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the, and the jailer called for lights and rushed in, trembling with fear as he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. At the start there, we see that even in a moment of great pain and humiliation, Paul and Silas are praying and singing hymns to God. It's not just that they didn't grumble or complain but they actually rejoiced in their situation. And it was enough to make everyone else in the jail silent. No wonder the other prisoners were listening. Paul and Silas were singing of a treasure that surpasses all earthly suffering and proving it to be true. Brothers and sisters, the world will be watching us when we walk through suffering. They'll be watching to see if what we believe makes any discernible difference in the hardships of life. The Christian who can maintain joy throughout trials will surely raise questions from others. 
And those questions will allow us to point people to the basis of our joy, Jesus Christ. That's exactly what takes place here in this prison moments later. We're told that suddenly there was a great earthquake, one that shook the very foundations of the prison itself, loosing all the doors and chains. But for the jailer in charge of this prison, this was the worst possible outcome. The punishment for losing the prisoners you were in charge of was death. And so, taking matters into his own hands, he's about to kill himself when Paul quickly stops him. Don't be afraid, Paul cries out. We're all still here. What's amazing is that it's not just Paul and Silas that stayed, but the other prisoners too. Maybe they've been captivated by Paul and Silas's singing and want to hear more about this God and his salvation. Upon hearing Paul's voice, the jailer rushes in and falls before them. He cries out, what must I do to be saved? Because none of the prisoners have escaped, he's safe in a physical sense. But his question points to the realization of a far greater need. He wants to know what he must do to be saved by God. And Paul knows that this is a crucial moment. So in this moment, he doesn't tell the jailer to clean up his life. He doesn't exhort him to forsake any particular sin. He knows now isn't the time to establish some basic truths or quiz the jailer on his theological understanding. Instead, he presents the gospel simply and clearly. Believe in Jesus and you will be saved. R. Kent Hughes says this, and hopefully it will be on the screen. A gospel that cannot save a dying man is no gospel. A gospel that initially requires more than faith alone is no gospel. The Philippian jailer was saved that night by faith. If his life extended over many months and years, he discovered that the Christian life demands all. But he always knew that his salvation came through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ alone. What a glorious thing it is to offer salvation to all by trust in Christ plus nothing. This simple proclamation of the gospel that Paul gave to the jailer was enough to entice him to bring Paul and Silas back to his household. There, the missionaries are able to explain the word of God to him more deeply, and we see the incredible effect of the gospel taking root in the jailer's heart. We see that he's moved with compassion to Paul and Silas. Moments ago, they were prisoners that he had harshly thrown into the stocks. Now they are his brothers, and he lovingly washes their wounds. Moments ago, he may have been scoffing at their songs, but now he wants to publicly declare his faith in Christ through baptism. One of the early church fathers said this about the jailer. He washed and was washed. He washed them from their stripes and was himself washed from his sins. The same Lord that opened Lydia's heart and freed the slave girl worked powerfully in the jailer's life to bring him to salvation. He didn't get there through quiet contemplation like Lydia, nor through dramatic liberation like the slave girl, but through the sudden shock and realization of his own mortality. Perhaps for some of us here, it was that realization that brought us to Christ as well. But did you see that the earthquake in this scene was not a divine jailbreak for Paul and Silas? It was God's rescue plan to wake this man up to his need for a savior. 
God sent an earthquake so that the jailer would be ready to hear the words of Paul and Silas and turn to Christ. And the result? Just as the gospel transformed Paul and Silas into men that can sing through suffering, so the gospel transforms the jailer into a man that invites his enemies for dinner. The fruit of the gospel is shown by his hospitality, just as it was when Lydia was converted. So what lies beneath that new hospitality that these believers share? It's the new unity that is one for them in Christ. The gospel transforms three individual lives and knits them together into a new community. What joy can we have as well as we are also united into this diverse family of grace? It can be hard to imagine a more contrasting group than the businesswoman, the slave girl, and the Roman jailer. Racially, socially, personally, they were worlds apart. Not only did they come from different parts of the ancient world, but they had completely different standings in society as well. Lydia would have been a wealthy member of the upper class, whilst the slave girl was at the opposite end of the spectrum. Poor and despised, she owned nothing, not even her own life. The jailer would have been somewhere in between, respected but not rich. But here we see the societal divide that kept these people apart was torn down when the gospel broke into their lives. As Paul writes in his letter to the Galatians, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And it wasn't just their economic status that differed them from one another. They each had personal needs that were met by the gospel. Lydia's need was intellectual. She needed someone to sit down with her and explain the way to salvation. The slave girl's need was psychological. She needed liberation and a new identity. We could say that the jailer's need was moral. Crying out to Paul and Silas, he knew he was a sinner in need of redemption. Our needs and the needs of our friends and family are not so different today. Praise God that all of our needs are fulfilled in Jesus and his gospel. So then, three very different testimonies, but the same life-giving gospel. I'll close with these words from Charles Spurgeon. Do not expect all to be converted in the same way. Do not suppose you are all to pass through the same terrors, nor all to be led by the same gentle methods, for our God is the God of variety. In creation and in providence, there are no two things exactly alike. And in the works of grace, we are not to have Christians all fashioned in the same shape. God deals with us each in different ways, and we are not to question the sincerity of our conversion because it is not precisely like our favorite model. Rather, we are to see whether its fruits are the same, whether it comes of God, and whether it leads to Christ. And if it does, that is all that matters. Brothers and sisters, if you know Christ this morning, know this. God has powerfully met you according to your needs, your circumstances, and has brought you into his ever-growing family. Let's pray now and give thanks to God for his wonderful gospel. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word to us this morning. We thank you for your word, which shows us that no sinner is beyond the reach of your gospel. Lord, we recognize that even though each and every one of us was brought to you through different circumstances, 
we were all sinners in need of your grace and you lavished your mercy upon us. Lord, we pray that your words this morning would give us a deep assurance of your love for us and our salvation. And we pray that we would be emboldened and encouraged to go out and speak for you. Please be with us now as we go from this place. Encourage our hearts and may we live a life of love for you. Amen.